It's a Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Welcome to The Richie Allen Show. Hope you're well. I've got two very interesting guests for you today. You don't want to miss them. Dr. Anne McCloskey will be live on the programme from Derry. Can't wait to chat with Anne. And a little bit later on, the criminologist and sociologist Stuart Wayton will be on the programme. Lots to talk about today. Get involved through the website richieallen.co.uk. That's the best way to leave a comment for me. So do it now. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. So Dr. Anne McCloskey, then very popular GP in Derry, former A and two councillor as well, Anne came out of retirement last year out of the goodness of her heart to help her her colleagues deal with uh, the pandemic, deal with the, the COVID pandemic. In fact, it might have been 2020. Um, but she was suspended late last year. Why was she suspended? Well, uh, for telling the truth, as it happens, for telling the truth that people were being coerced into taking a vaccine, bribed into taking a vaccine, bullied into taking a vaccine, and that was malevolence on behalf of the authorities. She was right, but she was suspended. And we're not going to talk too much about that because I think you know all about that. We're going to get into much more with the doctor, Anne McCloskey. This hour, she'll be with me in just over 20 minutes' time. And in the second hour, an old friend of mine, the academic, the criminologist, sociologist, Stuart Wayton will be on the programme. We're going to talk about freedom of speech and freedom of thought. We'll talk about the Joe Rogan saga and Spotify putting disclaimers on his programmes. What has he done? Well, he's done what we've been doing. Interview scientists and doctors. have got a different take on vaccines and lockdowns. That won't do. We'll talk to Stuart about that and much more in the second hour. That's Wednesday's programme. It is live from Salford, as it always is, BBG Towers. With me, the BBG. Richie Allen to me, friends. There aren't too many of them. So yeah, so you'll know by now I just mentioned that Spotify will be putting a disclaimer on the Joe Rogan podcast. Spotify spent a fortune some years ago, a fortune to to buy his podcast fair play to Joe. Apparently, there's no show like a Joe show. Right. So anyway, he's interviewed doctors and scientists who question the safety of the jabs. That's good, isn't it? I mean, they've earned the rights, right? Uh, Sharon Stone is, a, well, has been today the latest celebrity or, I don't know, public person to come out against Rogan. She said his podcast should carry a disclaimer that says Joe is a bit of an asshole. That's a direct quote now. She even said it in an Irish accent. Arsehole, I think she said. She said the podcast shouldn't carry a disclaimer about the COVID misinformation. It should say that he's an arsehole. So Sharon Stone then joining Joni Mitchell and Neil Young sounds like the cast of the Broadway version of Return of the Living Dead, doesn't it? Doesn't it? All these crusty old bitches coming out of nowhere that we haven't seen in years. <laughs> Piss off back to obscurity, numpties. I jest, I jest, of course. I love Sharon Stone. Come on, how many times did you pause that scene in Basic Instinct, eh? I used to rewind the video and pause it and pause it. 
God blast those old VHSs when you paused and the screen started jumping up and down. You couldn't see the beaver. Remember that? Sharon Stone, Basic Instinct. It was lovely. So I'll forgive her anything. But it deals with lay people declaring PhDs to be fake news spreaders. And I want to talk to Dr. Anne McCloskey about that. Lay people. I'm a lay person. Well, I'm an idiot, really, who makes crass jokes. I'm an idiot. I don't have any right to to declare a qualified man or woman to be spreading fake news. How the hell would I know? We'll get into that with Anne. And, 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 uh, the BBC has given the Archbishop of Canterbury a new radio series on faith and morality. You'd think he's the guy, wouldn't you? Man of the cloth, the arch, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. So brand new radio series, BBC, that's where your licence fees are going, should you be someone who pays your licence fee. A series of faith and morality. Guess who the first guest is on the Archbishop's new programme? Well, it's only Tony Blair. Tony Blair. You hear that, Tom? Tony Blair on morality with the Archbishop. You hear that? No. Could you repeat it? Because I, I can't believe my fucking ears. Yes, yes. Tony Blair is going to talk to the Archbishop about morality. The murdering bastard. Reese. Reese, any message for the Archbishop? You daft prick. Fair enough. He is a daft prick, all right. That's what I would have said. Uh, the Scottish government is... Wait for it. Going to spend £300,000. £300,000? Cutting the bottom off of 2,000 classroom doors to improve ventilation to combat the spread of COVID. Oh, oh, £300,000 the Scottish government is allocating to saw the bottom off of 2,000 classroom doors to freeze the bejesus out of the kiddies so that the teachers won't catch the germs which contain COVID. (laughs) Oh, God. It's part of an overall £5 million scheme to improve the airflow in the schools. Willie Rennie... Willie Rennie, great name, great radio name, Willie Rennie, through the night on richieallen.co.uk. Willie Rennie is a Scottish Lib Dem politician. He's their education spokesman. He said this is ridiculous and it's farcical. £300,000 to saw the bottoms off of 2,000 doors. Dear listener, I don't know about you, but I know a couple of chippies. I know a couple of carpenters that I'd do it for a lot less than that, eh? I'd do it myself, except I failed woodwork. I failed woodwork. I was kicked out after a year. I'm not joking, by the way. To get to year two of woodwork, you had to make a garden dibber, or as my teacher Finbar O'Connor, who was from Cork, used to call it a garden dibber. A garden dibber. No, he wasn't from Cork. He was from somewhere on the East Coast. A garden dibber. A garden dibber is a stupid implement that you, you, you use with your hands and you stick it into the ground and you make little holes for plants, a garden dibber. It's in two pieces. You have to plane it down. You have to, you have to sow a little bit of it. Then you have to get the chisel and chisel it out so that the top part fits to the bottom part. I got an E. That was the end of that. And this is interesting because this goes to air quality monitors and CO2 monitors. 
they're bringing in CO2 monitors. Not now, but they plan to bring them in. CO2 monitors in classrooms and offices. But won't that inevitably lead to closures, won't it? If the CO2 monitors declare there to be a bit much CO2 in the air, won't people be sent home? Won't that eventually lead to lockdowns? Won't we have CO2 monitors on highways and public streets, won't we, in town centres? Don't laugh at this. CO2 monitors, you know, in, in, in the middle of the town, on, 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 a, on a big, I don't know, like a big screen or something. Uh, it's a bit too much CO2 now around the town. Maybe it's time for you all to go home. And Spiro Skouras, my friend and your friend, sent me an interesting article from thehill.com written by Kristen Tate, who is an opinion contributor. It's a lovely job to have, to be an opinion contributor. Kristen Tate. She's a smart lady. She writes, The past two years have been a checklist for the worst impulses of government and public sentiment. COVID allowed for supposedly temporary measures to morph into two years of emergency restrictions. But what if COVID was only the opening act and another proclaimed crisis is the main event? Implementing significant but partial restrictions, one by one, in the name of the common good, can allow for encompassing government control that results in relatively little backlash. I see where Kristen is going with this. They've gotten away with it already, locking people down, confining them to their homes, closing their businesses, convincing them it's in the public good. So that ship has already sailed. People have already bought into this bullshit. She says fear over climate change could lead to long-term soft lockdowns, given the precedence, excuse me, given the precedent of immense growth of government power and significant support for sweeping state actions. She goes on to say, in November 2020, the Red Cross proclaimed that climate change is a bigger threat than COVID and should be confronted with, quote, the same urgency, end quote. Bill Gates recently demanded dramatic measures to prevent climate change, claiming it will be worse than the pandemic. Despite millions of people having died from COVID, according to Kristen, former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, last year predicted that climate debts will dwarf those of the pandemic. Lockdowns, which significantly reduced carbon emissions during 2020, could be the solution. After all, she writes, the European Union's climate service gloated the first COVID lockdown may have saved 800 lives. She goes on to speculate in the article about what a climate lo lockdown would look like. Cities and states gradually and discreetly ramping up restrictions. People being told to work from home. Uh, that could be the permanent norm if special carbon taxes are put in place. You could impose carbon taxes on companies, limiting driving, limiting air miles, and extending this down to individual employees. You could get hit with a tax for driving a car. Now, I speculated about this, as Spiro kindly said today. Thank you, Spiro. Back in mid-2020, this did occur to me that they might, in the future, decide that, well... Climate lockdowns, why not? I speculated that there might come a time in the near future where I might be allowed to take my car out for a Sunday drive with the missus and the two doggies, maybe only every second Sunday. Maybe side, maybe the left-hand side of the street, you get to take the car out on Sunday, the, I don't know, the, 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 the 6th of January or February. And then the following Sunday, the next street down, you get to take your cars out. We've got a ration, we've got a ration. 
and you can extend that out any way you want. Very interesting stuff. Thank you, uh, Spiro. Um, going to be talking about David Goodwillie. And I am again, like I did yesterday, going to resist the temptation to make any joke about it because sexual assault isn't a laughing matter, dear listener. David Goodwillie was signed recently by Wraith Rovers. Wraith Rovers in Scotland. Apparently he's a decent footballer. can score a goal, can the lad. He was signed and the author Val McDermott is a very successful author and sponsors the football club. She cancelled her sponsorship immediately and the captain of the ladies team walked away from Wraith Rovers because of the signing of David Goodwillie because he was ruled to be a rapist in a civil case in 2017. And this has grown and grown and grown, this story. And we'll get into this with Stuart Waiton in the second hour. On that story, though, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, Jimmy Cranky to her friends and enemies, had this to say about the Wraith Rovers saga. Look, I would hope Wraith Rovers would reflect very carefully on the groundswell of opinion that has been expressed over the past 24 hours from all walks of life, but most particularly from their own fan base, um, and perhaps think again about this decision. Have another think about it, says Jimmy. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Two Wraith Rovers directors have also walked away over the signing of this man. He wasn't given a criminal conviction. He wasn't. The young woman or the woman involved didn't accept that and sued him in a civil court and won damages against him and another man. We'll get into that a bit later on. Okie dokie. Uh, James Whale works for Talk Radio and he's become, I suppose, notorious of late for being incredibly pro-jab and also for being obnoxious to callers and listeners who sometimes very gently phone into his programme to suggest to him that maybe he's not seeing the big picture and that maybe mandating jabs is not a good thing. And he's an obnoxious goon, is James Well, But this made me laugh uh, today. On last evening's edition of the James Whale Show, he decided he would go after, he would try and define the anti-vaxxer. And apparently, dear listener, if you consider yourself to be an anti-vaxxer, well, James Whale believes you to be a bit thick, a bit stupid, a bit dumb, a bit dull, and also a bit ugly, apparently. Ugly-like. You know, in terms of your, your, your physical appearance. Have a listen. Anti-vaxxers have very little uh, in the way of in- intellect because they use some very rude words, don't they, Ash? Imagine that. Yeah, and they can't even spell them correctly. Oh, yeah, I'd noticed that, but it's difficult for me being a dyslexic whether they spelt them or not, but... They're very you know, angry, aren't they? They're very angry people, a lot mm. of them. They're angry. And there's one such an ugly-looking person in their... Probably not their picture, so ugly... Imagine being called rude by James Whale. Imagine being called <laughs> angry by James Whale, huh? That's like being accused of, I don't know, racism by Tommy Robinson. Ugly. And you're not allowed to say that anymore. So um, I I don't reply to every, by any means. Every now and then I see one and I reply, you know, you could call in. So if you you don't like uh, something I said on the show about anything, you can call Call in. Call in if you've got the Um, guts. Yeah. You you won't get cut off until you start being abusive. Well, that's a lie, that. Because nurses have rang in his programme to say, listen... Not too sure about the safety of these jabs, and I, I'm not I'm not having it or them. 
and they've been abused, insulted, ridiculed, and, and basically hung up on. A bit of a lawyer, James Whale, isn't he? And then you get cut off. But very many of you can actually do it without... Now remember, he said that you don't have much of an intellect. And, and you know, the anti-vaxxers are a, really quite a weird selection of people. Mm. And as I said to Kevin, they have caused an enormous amount of trouble now um, with those people refusing to get their kids vaccinated for mRNA. M-R-N-I? What the f*** is that? Um, M-R-N-A. M-R-N-A? They won't get their kids vaccinated for mRNA. The, the measles. And you're sick, dear listener. Measles vaccine, which yeah, can be yeah, absolutely yeah. deadly to some children. The measles vaccine is the mRNI vaccine. MMR, is it the MMR? Is it? MMR, sorry, you're right, MMR. What's yeah. MRI? Yeah. No, anyway. I wonder, did, he, did, did the irony dawn on him? The irony of a monologue which began with labelling people as being a bit thick and then not knowing about the MMR jab. James Whale. What a cock. Talk radio, apparently, 17 minutes past the hour. Carl Hennigan is a seemingly nice guy. He wouldn't come on this programme, but fair enough, you know. Who, who could blame him? He's an evidence-based medicine professor. He's also a GP. And he's an Oxford University lecturer. Not that that impresses me now, but he is. And he's done his best throughout the scam to put the other side of it across. You know, no need for lockdowns. No need to be coercing people into having the jabs. Now, I didn't even talk about this yesterday because I couldn't be arsed. But they found a strain off of the Omicron strain. There's another strain or a variant. It's a spin-off of the Omicron, apparently. <laughs> it's like Knott's, as Knott's Landing was to Dallas, as Knott's Landing was to Dallas... So is this new BC3N12654-1237 uh, strain. It's just broken off from Omicron. And Carl Hennigan said today, don't worry your little heads about it. Well, let's just say number one is not to be alarmed. Just like you, I've had uh, COVID twice and the first one wasn't recorded because we didn't have the testing. After about a year, your immunity starts to come back to baseline and the other coronaviruses have been shown to keep, lead to reinfections. But when you get it the second time, it's much milder. So that's what's happening here, and that's a natural evolution of the infection. What it does do is what show that actually the Omicron variant is actually a milder disease, and we even fought before these reinfections. So what it does is it lowers the case fatality rate even further, and also lowers what we call, we now know the infection fatality rate is much lower. So the more the more cases there have been, then and the fewer people who, who, who go into hospital or go into, who sadly die, um, that actually, those figures strangely get better. Yeah, they do get better. And what they do is there's been big debates. Is this like flu? I think we can put that to bed now that actually we are in the same position as what we are with normal flu season. And is that for those who are vaccinated or is that also the case for those who are not vaccinated? Well, this is across the board. I, there are. I love it. Doesn't matter a damn whether you're jabbed or not. There are interesting issues about vaccines that we can't discern without the data to hand. For there are interesting issues about the vaccines which we can't discern without the data to hand. Do you think Julia Hartley Brewer did her job and stopped him and said, Professor Hennigan, what interesting issues about the vaccines are we unable to discern because we don't have the data? Of course, Julia Hartley Brewer didn't stop him because, well, 
Useless as tits on a board. Since there's a called a healthy vaccine bias. I've seen one or two people who've died recently because they were palliative care and they chose not to take the vaccine. And I don't know how they're included in the figures. So if I could get to the bottom of the figures, I could answer that question. Yes. But importantly, it's a good job this data didn't emerge before Christmas because we may have had more panic and more lockdown. Now we are looking at the end of this pandemic because we can say we are in a position where this mild infection is not disrupting hospitals, not leading to deaths. Importantly, about half of people in hospital are now incidental findings. A third of deaths are not the underlying cause. Yeah. So once you start to understand that, we are moving back to normal. Yeah. People, I mean, people are still... Asleep. So we're at the end of the pandemic. So it's again. I think there never was a pandemic. In my opinion, I've never said there wasn't any COVID. We've never had a pandemic, I don't believe. But but what do I know? I'm a lay person. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, Spiro has come back to me. How are you doing, Spiro Skouras? He will be on the Richie Allen Show early next week, by the way. Looking forward to catching up with my old pal there. He says to me, Richie, Mary Trump is the latest... I don't know what you'd call them. Snowflake... Karen, I don't know. Karen, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say Karen. I've never said Karen. I've never used that term until now. Uh, Mary Trump has said, I'm pulling my podcast off of Spotify because of Joe Rogan. Do you think Mary Trump has got a following? Trump's sister, right? Is she? Is she his sister or his niece? I think she's his niece. I feel a bit stupid now saying she's his sister. She's his niece, isn't she? Mary Trump. Help me out there. Give us the Trump dynasty, yeah. It's uh, 22 minutes past the hour. Coming up in a moment, Dr Anne McCloskey will be on the programme. Later on, Stuart Waiton, PhD. Terrific bloke as well as Stuart. He's been on with me many times over the last few years. We'll talk about that issue, Joe Rogan, freedom of speech. And we'll get into that David Good Willie story as well. The signing of this man by Wraith Rovers, which has caused such controversy in the last couple of days. Stuart has a really interesting take on this that's to do with the judicial system and how he feels the jury trials are deliberately being attacked or pushed out. There are those who want to get rid of jury trials. And he's going to talk about that in the second hour. I think you'll find him uh, very interesting. I know you'll find Dr. Anne McCloskey interesting. Stand by. She'll be with me on the other side of this tune. I will not comply from Blind Joe. 25 minutes past five. Wednesday's programme. Welcome to it. Thanks for all the comments thus far. RichieAllen.co.uk If you'd like to comment on the programme, I don't even think you need to sign up. Just go to... Uh, the website comment live on the menu bar. There are hundreds and hundreds of comments already this afternoon and many of them concern my first guest. A lot of love and respect for her. A very, very well-respected and well-liked family doctor in Derry. You know all about her. She was suspended from practising last year. Now remember, she was retired and had come out of retirement to help with the COVID effort. Right? Which is a very decent thing to do. But she told the truth. Now, I see you shouldn't editorialise, Richie, but I'm going to do it because it's a fact. She said that people were being coerced and bribed and bullied into taking vaccines and that maybe they didn't all need them and that maybe we don't know enough about the jabs and maybe it's not a great thing. 
I would have thought that was the responsible thing for any GP or doctor to do. But it ended up in her being suspended for 18 months while she's investigated. Now, she's done a lot of great work since then, working with people like Dolores Cahill and others. Many others have been on this programme uh, to raise awareness about your rights, your human rights when it comes to medicine and your bodily autonomy rights and, and more besides. I'm delighted to uh, welcome her to the programme for the first time, Dr Anne McCloskey, live in Derry. I think you're in Derry, Anne. Are you in Derry this evening? In, in the back sitting room. Ah, you're in the back sitting room. Well, kind of Derry. It's lovely to have you, by the way. Thanks for doing it. You were running around today, but you made time for us, so I really appreciate that. It's, it's great to be able to talk to you. I'm a fan of your work, yeah. I've been... Tuning in as often as I can in recent months, yeah. You're very kind to say that. Can I ask this, and I, I mean this, you, so, so you had your career as a doctor, you retired. It must be a very proud thing. There is a doctor in my extended family and, you know, we're all very proud because it's a very difficult thing. It's a horrible, you know, five, six, seven years in, in, in school, in, in university, you come out, you do good, you work hard, you work your fingers to the bone. And it must be a lovely thing. How do you cope with the, I don't even know if you are angry. How do you cope with the injustice of, of something like that, of being told, listen, we're going to suspend you, when you know that what you've said is absolutely right, when you know that it's the moral and the ethical thing to do? Do you have a lot of anger about that, And Did you have a lot of anger about it? And how do you deal with that? Well, I'll just take you back a bit. First of all, being a doctor has been one of the privileges of my life and I am not blowing smoke. It has been wonderful. I was a GP in Derry. I worked in paediatrics, first of all, and then in community child health. And then I wanted to create my own little paediatric problems. So I came back to my hometown of Derry and it has been wonderful. I loved being a GP every day was it was you know there were days obviously when you weren't maybe in top form but generally speaking those people were my friends they were like extended family some of them and I still talk to them and meet them regularly and and it was great and no I have no anger at all I am um, I have incomprehension and bewilderment at what has happened to my profession but looking back over, I mean, I qualified in 1981, which means I can no longer lie about my age. But I have watched <laughs> the, the NHS being dismantled and hollowed out. Uh, it's, it was been gone on at a lower level with, with Tony Blair uh, and his new labour. It certainly accelerated. You know, you saw the, the, the privatisation of the profitable bits and, and the abandonment of the bits that were were less profitable and 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 the reduction in, in capacity. And then uh, COVID hit and you saw the removal of any pretense at 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 patient-centered holistic um care and, and the, the 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 way that that somehow people who were taught uh who had ethical codes to which they're required to adhere in both nursing and in, in medicine, just were able to jettison those because um, a, a, a diktat came from on high and even in many cases from, from abroad, um, that, that they had to behave in a certain way. And the way that, that elderly people were abandoned, that the, the people in the nursing homes, I mean, when the history of these times are written, I think it is the pictures of, of people crying at windows and children being held up through to plate glass to say hello to grandparents and, and what that said about both children and parents and what it said about about how we as humans um, 
should behave towards one another. I just I, I am still reeling in incomprehension. And I, I actually left medicine to go into politics and uh, that didn't go so well. I was elected as a councillor here in Derry, but I, I resigned. I said that if they locked up my hometown, which was already socioeconomically challenged, if they locked it up again on the basis of PCR tests, which we knew were fraudulent, which we knew did not measure infection or infectivity, but were used to provide media misery porn to the uh, Stephen Nolan and Creepy Crawley and people like that on the BBC. That's their, that was their only function from day dot. PCR tests told us nothing. And uh, as I say, a freedom of information uh, uh, request to our local trust has shown that here in a wee town like Derry and in St. Byron's, we spent 3.8 million within the health service on PCR tests who are absolutely without any shred of, of justification except to produce these things that we call cases. And asymptomatic cases, of course, are healthy people um, who can't give anybody anything. So all of that, I mean, I, I, I still I'm angry about that. I'm not angry about what has happened to me, because once you see the truth, then what happens to me is irrelevant. And um, I had funny, I've just had a phone call from a woman who's distraught because her daughter has applied uh, has worked hard at school and has, has applied to do, I think, is she, occupational therapy, I think, in a university uh, in, in, in England. And she's just had an email to say that a requirement of her being accepted on the course is that she's fully vaccinated. Now, if that isn't coercion, I don't know what is. It is that coercion. Is free and informed choice. And last night I had uh, quite a few parents from one of the local special schools here because they've started uh, injecting this experimental gene serum into five-year-olds. And at the beginning, when I was still involved in politics, I, re I retired, I resigned in, you know, in the autumn of, of 2020, um, while I was still in there, I remember saying that this would happen. And at that time, uh, I was called insane. And uh, But I saw very clearly early on where this was likely to take us. And unfortunately, I would love to be wrong, but... Um, you know, it's 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 it is bizarre. You called it right there, yeah. I do remember seeing some some other interviews with you going back to that time. I remember seeing a video of you giving a speech on a street, uh, or or on a street somewhere, or in a square, and you said that very thing that. I think yeah. you said something along the lines of like, when they're saying like 15 million jabs just for the vulnerable, you, I remember you clearly saying that's not true. It's not going to be 15 million jabs. It's going to be jabs for, for everybody. 7.8 billion repeated ad nauseum. They want to inject every person on the planet. And now we see that these things are not, they're obsolete. They are useless. They are harmful. They are increasing death from the very thing that they're supposed to prevent. And th this now is, absolutely obvious in countries with high rates of immunization or in injection and yet in countries that have thus far managed to have the either the sense or they're too poor this 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 juggernaut is rolling on that we must get these shots into every arm on the planet now i know you um, believe i know you believe and i'm not saying i don't believe it by the way but i know you believe that the jobs are causing harm and that a lot of the you know the so-called covid sickness in hospitals now might be being amplified by the jabs. I know you believe that. I have to ask you this. Is, is there any real hard evidence? It's very difficult for you, despite your knowledge and despite your education. I know you can't have access to the sorts of things that people have access to in laboratories and in hospitals, but, but why are you so certain 
that the jabs are, are are causing so much so much of the the problems we see now. Well, the statistics are are plain. If you look at at, at the, the the island of Ireland in the year twenty twenty, nothing happened. There no there were no excess deaths. There was and and in in, in almost no country across the planet was there any um excess all-cause age standardized all-cause mortality in the year of the so-called pandemic nothing happened except misattribution and and testing of people with it with a test that shows nothing do you know two to the power of 45 if you amplify something 45 times it's a figure that begins with 38 trillion I mean, this is the number of times that they're they're multiplying the the, the, the amplifying the sample. And you were telling people on the council, and you're a doctor. This is stuff you know. You were telling them, "Hey, guys, listen. These PCR tests are unreliable because they're not supposed to amplify the sample so many times." You were telling them that clearly I, at the yeah, time. Absolutely. But not only that, there, there's some some sense or. You know, some it's tenuous, but there might be some justification for the use in people who are ill, who have respiratory symptoms. But to go out into the highways and byways and 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 you know, sort of make people who are perfectly well undergo amplification of of stuff up their nose, looking for a a, a small series of 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 of, gene- of um, genetic material, is insanity. W- when did we ever do stuff like this before? Never. So I want to go back to your question about how I know. I have here in my hand um, Pfizer's own document, which they were forced to publish, and it, it's their cumulative analysis of post-authorization adverse events. And on page 11 of that document, it says quite clearly, uh, I mean, we've known uh, hypothetically, they've been trying to use this mRNA technology and, and, and experiment, experimenting with it in animals since the 1980s. This stuff has never been used in the human species before, ever, ever until December until 2020. So, but we, th- th- there have been significant a body of work done uh, on all on these things, going back decades. And the animals, when they were given to animals, they didn't do well. And and there's there's been loads of papers published about the theoretical problems which may arise. And the problem is that none of those have been, none of those problems have been disproven. You know, so that we know that vaccine associated enhanced disease and that autoimmune disorders and that blood and clotting. And the other thing is, is that this spike protein, I was listening to a very eminent virologist who says that there's a one in 25 million chance of it having arisen in nature. This is a a, a genetically modified um, spike protein, almost certainly. And, and the mRNA sequences which are used, which are being injected in their billions into our children, are a pattern to make that genetically modified spike protein so that it, it's possibly even worse than, 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 than we might have thought. But all of these things, these auto, the prion disease, the neurological disease, the autoimmune disease, the clots, all of that, all of this was predictable and it's all happening. But on page 11 of their cumulative analysis of post-authorization adverse events, it says clearly, vaccine-associated enhanced disease may present as severe or unusual clinical manifestations of COVID-19. Wow. Isn't that wonderful that the, the side effects of a, a, a treatment or injection is identical to the disease which they're trying to prevent. And if you actually, if you think about it, it has to be because your body is making in t- inside itself using its own genetic material, the toxin of the thing which caused the disease in the first place. A- am I insane? Or does that not seem like a good plan? The it's, thing's ridiculous. It's 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 beyond belief 
Dr. Anne McCloskey is our guest. Anne, on the on the, 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 the possibility it might have been engineered, do you give some credence then to the theories that we, we know that Anthony Fauci was involved in gain-of-function research on coronaviruses. Do you think that that's what might have happened? They were trying to weaponize, you know, pretty harmless yeah. viruses. That, it's not a matter of opinion. It's yeah. a matter of facts. And, and I think there's a, a quite robust evidence and, and a series of emails which confirm that. Uh, the, the research facility was 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 told it wasn't allowed to do this stuff in, in the USA. And then um, and there were millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions given uh, by the Fauci's Institute to the lab, laboratory in Wuhan. Now, you see, the thing, Richie, is we don't have the playbook for any of this. No. You and I and all the people who are trying to make sense of this don't know what's going on. There are people who do know. But all I, all we can say is from the, the the bits and pieces that we can accumulate, it looks like this is, is hugely malevolent. Now, these these things are, have no indemnity if you come to harm. If you look, as I have done very carefully, at, at the yellow card data and the fact that that only probably is, is a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall harms from these things. And as I say, in clinical practice, I one of the things that precipitated my, the loss of my license to practice when it was when I came home distraught after a weekend when I'd done a couple of shifts and uh, overnights and you know I, I and I'd seen so many people, including a young woman who had a clot in her upper arm. Now this is six months ago. I spoke about that. I didn't identify the patient, but I did say that in forty years of medicine, I have never seen that. Now I see Peter McCullough coming out and saying exactly the same thing that this. Thing, upper arm clots in healthy young people is, is, is a new phenomenon, as so many of the things that we're seeing now, particularly in young people, they've, they've never occurred before. And you see, you're not allowed to say this is this. This is the, the, the thing that fascinates me. At the time I saw that lady, I wrote to her hospital consultant and her GP and said, if we do not report, they had they had asked her so many leading questions and told her that it must have been an injury and that she must have hurt herself at the gym. And then it was read coded and I could see that it was coded in her clinical notes as a provoked upper arm clot instead of a spontaneous one. That was a lie. The doctor who coded that in that way was telling a lie. And the, the, the yellow card, you know, these things are simply not being reported. And I wrote to them and said, if we do not report every adverse event, you cannot see signal. When we are using an intervention which has never been used in the human species ever before, the least we can do is record everything so that you can see a pattern. But instead, people are saying it could not possibly be the vaccine. And people who know, I have a 50-year-old woman who used to jog for an hour every day, and she's now in a row later. She has been told she has a motor neuron disease, happened two days after her second dose. She's been told that there is no possibility that this was caused by her vaccine. Now, that's that's anti-science. So, you know, there is no such thing as the science. Science is an, is an evolving process. And if you do not report and 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 then examine the MHRA are obliged on behalf of the people to examine these reports and find out and investigate. And they're doing nothing. They're collating them, knowing that it's only a fraction of what's going on. And actively, it seems doctors are being discouraged from having any hand actor part of attributing. And you're not you're not saying it causes it. You're saying this is reporting. And you're not saying you're not saying for a fact that the jab contributed to the motor neuron symptoms. But you are saying, quite rightly, I think, how dare anybody rule it out without investigating it? 
Well, this this is the problem: is when you are yeah. when you are using an experimental intervention of with which there there is no very little safety data. You need to look. You need to record everything that happens, and then you can evaluate and see. Well, is there an increase in this? But if people have been told there's no, you know, it just it's it, it's it's the opposite of science. It's the opposite of of a, a you know a, 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 a drug trial as as proper. You know, and 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 the, even at the beginning of these, they were unblinded. The researchers knew who was getting what intervention. The whole thing, you know, it it's. If you were doing that for GCSE biology and that was the model that you were using, you would be told that it 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 it, it couldn't possibly tell you anything or produce any any robust safety data or concerns about safety. It's insane. Doctors um, are not reporting as they should be, and and I know this to be true. I've heard, I've had many GPs on the program, I've had many nurses on the program, and here's the thing: you and I discussed briefly this morning when we chatted. The thing that must be absolutely boiling you and every other doctor and every other scientist. We now have lay people demanding that very, very famous podcasters are banned effectively because they interviewed eminently, or I should say, what's wrong with me, eminently qualified people like the aforementioned Dr. McCulloch and others who are saying very similar things that you've said to me today. I mean, this is, it's vaudeville. How dare any journalist... I heard BBC Radio 5 Live the other morning, a guy called Rick Edwards, basically accusing, I mean, this is on the BBC, accusing Joe Rogan's guests of misinformation. This guy is just like me. He's just a guy who gets paid for talking. A mouse. How could he know? How could I know? It's, 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 it's absolutely bizarre. And then within the, the sort of scientific elite, you've got, oh, you're a virologist, so therefore you can't know anything about epidemiology. You've all this super specialism. And someone like me, I'm a generalist. I have read a lot of science and I know how to look at a scientific paper. I'm not claiming to be a virologist, but I can read a paper in virology and draw my own inferences from it and, and, and be able to talk, you know, about that. And it's sort of, oh, you're only a, G, you know, it's it's this thing about expertise now has become like it's like it's like the new religion that these people, you know, are the only people who are allowed to look at science and data. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. First of all, as far as I can see, the only people who got COVID at the beginning were royalty, people in show business. And that uh, will include the politicians among the people um, who are in show business. But I mean, they got it at rates that were thousands of percentages higher than the average population. I don't think anybody that people know generally, you know, unless they were very frail or very sick, came to much harm from this. But, um, you know, you had this and, 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 and then this media frenzy around all of that at the start. And then it kind of tapered off. I mean, our, one of our, our local, um, that the, the, one of the deputy first ministers, I think she's had it now four times, which is um, fairly it's some achievement. But you know what I mean? The whole thing was, was, was a, a media circus from the start. And yet, at the beginning, I was writing articles for the local papers on the harms of lockdowns, particularly for children, the poor, the marginalised woman, the unwaged, because these are the people who, are, who have been most severely affected by this. And, I, you know, they, they accepted the articles and then it all dried up. I'd been ringing the radio station saying, please let me debate with anybody. You name the person. Let me on live to discuss what is happening with them. And this is when I was a, a, a public representative. I was an elected councillor for Derry and Stavane Council. They wouldn't let me within an ass's roar of it. And I have offered to, to do the, the Minister for Health, Chief Medical Officer, Chief Scientific Officer, any of them. 
at any hour of the day or night in the place of their choosing. Let's have a sane, respectful, honest, um, informed conversation about the risks and benefits um, and, and the requirement and, and how we can best manage what is now known to be no worse than a flu um, and, and, and how we can stop doing what we're doing to particularly our children. And it never it's, happened. Those debates never happened. My background is in production, in radio production. I, I often say to my listeners, they must be bored of me saying it, but, you know, back in the day, I would have been all over you like a rash on. And, you know, to do my job, basically, I, I would have been saying to my presenter at the time, listen, we've got a doctor who's an elected councillor. She doesn't think this is very good. Let's get her on at the yeah. speed of light. But, yeah, there's been a kind of a lockstep thing there with the media. I've been go-to person for, for medical stuff for decades, yeah. you know. I, you know, they were, I was very happy to go on and, 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 and talk to them. And, and, you know, some of my views, well, I'm sure you're not surprised, would be a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm very pro-life, for example. And I was the person that they got on to, to, to you know, to argue that, that side of it. But all of a sudden, it was just your voice is not allowed to be heard. And that I find frightening. It's, it's horrifying. And as I say, the reason that I have been removed, my license to practice medicine has been removed, is to warn other doctors. Yeah. Don't even think about it. Hey, can I just uh, double down on that? You're listening to Dr. Anne McCloskey. Anne wasn't suspended for anything she did. She hasn't harmed a hair on a patient's head in her life. She was suspended because of an opinion. She gave an educated, qualified opinion over 30 years of experience. And she said, look, this is not good. Lockdowns ain't good. These jobs are maybe not necessary. They also might cause harm. And for giving that opinion, she's been censored and she's been suspended, not for anything that she did. And on that, the online harms bill is going to be all the rage in the next two to three weeks in Westminster. And and I, we never do sensationalism on this programme. We don't, ever. If I say something I, 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 is true, it's because I can prove it. They want to criminalise what they call knowingly spreading medical misinformation. That's an absolute quote. So in the near future, the very qualified, experienced Dr. Anne McCloskey could go to jail for two years for criticising the vaccines. That is not a joke. That is what they want to bring in in this country, Anne. Yeah. Yeah. As long as they um, continue to insist that that children uh, accept this toxin, I'm quite prepared to go to jail. And I'm not, I mean, I, I come from a, a generation of people where very many of the, my, my friends and, 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 and people in my community spent long years in jail. And I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's, it's a good thing to do, but, and whether they were right or wrong, they felt strongly about, you know, a, a thing that they were prepared to actually um, risk that. And I'm, I'm not going to shut up. I mean, even now they're saying because, you know, the general medical counsellor, I mean, I've, I've given them 48 pages of fairly close typed evidence and saying, answer me these questions, you know, and, and let's have this conversation. And they're just kicking it down the down the line. But, um, you know, there, there's no issue. I am not I'm not afraid. I do. I don't care if I ever get to practice medicine again. The only thing that I don't like is that I can't help people because during the time whenever people couldn't get their children sorted out, if they'd fevers or sore throats or rashes or whatever, I was seeing children in my front sitting room free, gratis and for nothing so that they didn't have to sit for 14 or 15 hours in, 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 in accident and emergency and get an invasive test 
uh, you know, just all of that disruption that families yeah. were having. And I've been trying to get this bloody virus for two years and I still haven't managed <laughs> you can't to get it. get it yourself. <laughs> and, I and, and, and it's and lovely. Get a tissues it's in a, two years. It's amazing, isn't it? And I, yeah. I, I think I might have had whatever it is last, well, very early 2020. But since then, no. And I genuinely yeah. don't know anybody either. And I've got to mention again, it's worth mentioning. I live within a five-minute walk, and that's not with my long legs. That's five minutes from Salford Royal Hospital. It's at the back of my uh, house is that big old uh, hospital, one of the biggest in the north of the country. I know two nurses there. They're in contact, contact with me regularly. And they say, despite taking out all the beds for the social distancing, despite making things, you know, more difficult by reducing capacity and all of that, they had very little going on in April, May of 2020, June. And they would swear by it. And Dr. Anne McCloskey is our guest. What, what, what Listeners are asking me to ask you, Anne. Can, can I just ask you this briefly? If you don't want to talk about this, we don't have to because there are more important things to talk about. But listeners are wondering about this seeming... It seems like at the moment we're getting a couple of victories and some of our listeners are very suspicious about that. So they've rolled back on plans to mandate the jabs for NHS uh, workers, which is a fantastic thing. Thank God for that. And restrictions are gone and it seems to be getting a bit back to normal. But a lot of people are very distrustful of that. Have you any opinion on that? I'm distrustful of everything everything that our government says, and I include North and South and England and Scotland and Wales, all of them are proven um, spiders of terminological inexactitude. My mother told me never to call anybody a liar. (laughs) Um, They have have, uh, distorted the truth and they, from the start, and as as I keep saying, we don't have the playbook. This, from the start, was never about a virus. It was about money. And as, as people have said, the, the disease was made for the injection and for the, the digital digitization of, of humanity. Um, and it seems with every passing month that that's becoming more true. So I think maybe the focus will shift. Maybe they have done what they needed to do um, with the COVID thing and are moving on to something else. I don't trust any of them. Uh, and I, I mean, I, as I said, we don't write the playbook. Uh, we just have to wait and see what new horrors they have to inflict upon us. But I'll tell you what I do see, and this is, I think it's important that that, that, that this is, I mean, the truckers convoy in Canada, millions upon millions of people across Europe that the, the BBC won't let us see, but we have other ways of finding out. Here on the, you know, just incredible communities uh, and, and grassroots movements uh, coalescing and coming together. Uh, just this afternoon, I was I was talking about, um, you know, the alternative health provision because the NHS is over there. You know, we, they've told us that I think this is part of this vaccine mandate is that people will resign en masse and they will be replaced by physician assistants and uh, drop down menus and algorithms. And, and you know, you'll, you'll you, all of this nonsense, because if you don't, there's an expression in medicine, if you don't put your finger in it, you'll put your foot in it. And I think it revered to colorectal cancer. But if you don't examine a patient, if you don't feel their belly, if you don't listen to their chest, if you don't test their pee, if you don't, you know, check their blood for sugar. I saw a young fellow at the beginning of this who almost died, who had a blood sugar of 30, who'd had four or maybe five uh, online or telephone converse, uh, consultations in the previous week. He almost died because nobody 
took him in and 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 checked his blood sugar. Um, and, and you know, the medicine cannot work, cannot work without human interaction and without getting your hands dirty and without getting up close and personal with somebody and and looking at them and examining them. And, uh, you know, we need to get back to that. And if the NHS won't, doesn't behave like that, then we need to set up alternative and better and robust structures um, outside of that. And, and is that uh, possible, Anne? You mentioned this today because you said something very interesting a few moments ago. You said we don't have the playbook, so we're kind of reacting to things as opposed to being proactive. It's difficult to be proactive. But what you've yeah. just said there, that sounds very proactive. Doing yeah. something different, taking you know, that positive step to build something else for people in terms of their health. How, how, how are you planning to go about that? It is happening. Um, again, I... Without, I can't say too much because all of this is 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 in in the development stage. But we're looking at premises in communities. We are also looking at 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 financing, and and there are people of high net worth. I think they're called, um, you and me would call them rich bastards, uh, but <laughs> who are interested yeah. in in putting significant sums of money to, to try and help get this off the ground. And the thing then would be done in in in. In, in a way, in, you know, so that people would be trusts and, and, and ways of, of, of moving away from all of the financial and, and uh, other systems that, that the constraints that are put on us by the state. Um, I'm not a, a finance expert. I know exactly nothing about money except that I like spending it. And, uh, you know, that's not my field. But and as well as what they call, I, I love this, they call us allopathic doctors. I am a doctor who actually worked within the system. And it's only whenever you step back a bit and look and realise that there's a whole world of medicine out there that that we know very little about. And I'm I'm humbled by the skills and by the the the, the scientific acumen that 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 what would have been known as alternative practitioners bring to this whole debate. And it's it's something that 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 is a learning curve. Now I'm an old lady. I don't want this is not for me. I'm very happy to give whatever help I can to it. But there are, you know, so many young. I was talking to a, a very, very senior uh, respiratory consultant in Liverpool, actually, this week, who is very interested, for example, in companies from here coming home and, and, and taking part in, 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 you know, helping to set these types of things up. I'm talking regularly to four or five senior consultants in the north. Now, you know, they're. And I am they're awake to what is going on, but not prepared to speak up and kind of saying to them, well, you know, I really don't want to hear if you're not prepared to do anything. But all I'm saying is, is that this is not a fringe, you know, lunatic, uh, you know, that there are very serious players within our current structures who realize that it is failing people. And I think it has been failing them for years. I mean, I was looking, I, I worked in an area of 60 percent child poverty and for for People, you know, this way, as we called BC before COVID, you know, people who needed a knee joint replacement, their families were having, these are people on, on very, living in very modest circumstances, were having to scrape up or go to the credit union for a loan and four or five of them would put a thousand quid a piece to get it done privately. That's been going on for a decade at least, where people just, it just, it had ceased to function. And, you know, it's, it's, we need, we need, we need to do better. And if, if, you know, it's not going to come from on high. I'm a firm believer that individuals, families, communities, uh, you know, areas 
we can do it. We can do it from the bottom up, and 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 we're seeing that. And you're seeing it now. That's an ex, that's an ex, an absolutely extraordinary thing you described there. We pay our national insurance, all of us, and you yeah. pay in, and you pay a lot over the years, and you don't use. Most yeah. of us don't go to the doctor very often. Uh, we we certainly don't go to hospital. And yeah. somebody who should have a knee replacement or a hip replacement on the NHS, they're entitled to it. Because they've paid for it and, and 10 times over. over and the they can't of- get it. So they've got to go private for it. Yeah. And, and as I say, families were having to go into debt because they didn't Credit want union debt. You know, and, 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 you know, an old couple living together where one had become dependent. Then if the other one needed a knee replacement and couldn't get it, it meant that they were both dependent. And all of that, all that short sighted nonsense. And, 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 you know, you don't need me to tell you about the millions that have been squandered in pseudo-medicine and, you know, all the, the woke stuff, that all of that nonsense that goes on. It's, 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 it's nuts. It's, it, you know, and, and the way that our elderly were treated through this pandemic, I think, would make me shudder. Uh, I'm actually working with the World Council of Health. This is an interesting one. Uh to talk about giving people a document to take into hospital with them should they require admission in order to protect themselves from the, the, the types of things that may happen to them in hospital. From midazolam, from midazolam, for example. Exactly. To say, yeah. for example, that you do not consent to have a DNR order placed upon you, that you insist upon food and fluids which we know were withdrawn from people without cause, that you do not consent to take part in any clinical trial under any circumstances whatsoever, that you want orthodox care, which would have been the standard three years ago and not these new protocols. You know, just simple stuff like that, that, you know, whenever I was went back to work, the first thing whenever you were out visiting older, older people in their home, the first thing they said was, doctor, do not put me into hospital. I don't want to die on my own. You know, it was it it was it was heartbreaking, and people even who sometimes needed it, and and I know of nurses who took uh, dying, you know, the, the 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 close relatives of 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 people who were dying in hospital in the at four in the morning up the back stairs up the porter's entrance to go in and hug the person that they loved and say their goodbyes. That is what the NHS did to our 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 communities and our people. And I, I, for one, can never forgive. I can never forgive what went on. No, because they knew better. Most of these people knew better. They must have known better. We, we've got doc, we've got Dr. Anne McCloskey on the line. We've got about five more minutes left with Anne. Um, we, I get a lot of comments during the live programme, ordinarily through the website. Um, I reckon it's about doubled in the last half hour to what we normally get because um, because you're on. People are loving listening to you, wishing you well, you and your colleagues. And just a question on the jabs. This is pure speculation. I, I totally understand that. People are asking me to ask you can, you, can you speculate as to what damage do you think the jabs are already doing or, or will do going forward if these, you know, if people continue to take these jabs and take the third one and then take the fourth one, what sort of kind of health implications are we looking at, do you think? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to understand that, 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 as I say, these have never been used before in humans. We don't have the information. There are theoretical reasons why we should be very concerned 
about, um, you know, as I say, autoimmune diseases, prion disease, effects on fertility. Uh, we know that in the short term, and it's already measurable, there are effects on clotting and uh, heart attack strokes and all the rest of it. But I think it's really important that the vast majority of people who've had, you know, one or two shots or, you know, whatever, most people, please God, will not come to, you know, immediate harm. Um, there is this thing about vaccine-associated enhanced disease. So the next time you meet, uh, you know, a, a coronavirus, uh, you know, the, the, the causative agent of the common cold, you may get much more sick. And I think a lot of the hospital admissions and the people who have been jabbed already may be a manifestation of that, which is very concerning. But it's important that if people use the usual methods of keeping themselves well, and there are protocols on, again, the World Council for Health and other places for things that you can use to boost your immune system, you know, after having had the jabs. And that, you know, probably we again hope after maybe nine months, a year, that people will be back at baseline or nearly at baseline. So I think it's really important that people have hope. What I would say, if you've had one injection, don't take the second. If you've had two don't take the third. And thankfully, people are already, you know, I think waking it up by themselves to that. I was talking to a district nurse there the other day who told me that they had to throw out 500 doses of the, the so-called booster, whatever that's meant to mean immunologically, uh, because nobody turned up for them. And I'm sorry, but my, I just, I was happy all day. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think people are not, and please, please, we now see there was a very clever mathematical a statistician looked at the, at the, the ONS data on all-cause mortality and showed that these injections in children are likely to increase their possibility of death, you know, all-cause death, 57 times. Now, I, that doesn't mean that, that hundreds and thousands of children are going to die because death in children is a very rare event, thankfully. But there is no sense to any of this. So please, please protect your children. There's a lovely website uh, called alltherisks.com done by a fellow here from the north of Ireland called Jonathan Wiseman. There's a, a safer to wait. There's all of this evidence. Now, children are not at risk from this. You're more likely to be harmed. Your child is more likely to be harmed by lightning than by COVID. It just doesn't happen. Statistically, zero uh, chance of, of severe illness or death. Your children do not need this. So wait, if in 10 years time we can look back and say these are safe and they're very effective and all the rest of it, the evidence is is very much pointing the other way at the moment. And as we accrue more and more evidence, you know, things will become. But to take that risk is is for your child. Adults can make an informed decision themselves, even though the information isn't available. But at least, you know, you're a sentient person who's in, in charge of your own bodily autonomy. For a child, they're dependent on the adults in the room to stand between them and harm. And so I would I, I think that's really, really important that people realise that that their children, you know, need their protection. Um, and unfortunately the system is very much stacked the other way. And we see coercion, bribery, and and all of the the desensitization of people, if you like, uh, and, and children being called biohazards. And uh, my granddaughter was telling me that she'd been off school, she's only five, sorry, six. Uh, for a couple of days and she went her wee friend whenever she went back to school after being absent come up and give her a big hug and the teacher got into trouble she says we get into trouble for hugging in the name of god in primary three you know it's what madness. what are we doing to our children it's madness that's 
And That's very I just upsetting, isn't it? One story before I leave, whenever I went back to the surgery, I saw a wee girl of about 12 months in the waiting area. And as you do, I don't wear a mask. Uh, and I, 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 well, I ask patients permission, obviously, but I, I don't. So I was coochie-cooing her and telling her how beautiful she was, as you do to a big, fat, bouncing baby. And she was looking at me with just a blank expression. And her mother said, you know, Anne, she's never seen a human face apart from me and her daddy without a mask. And I, I actually cried. What are we doing to our children for that, nothing? That, you that's know, worth the show. That's worth the show on in and of itself, isn't it? The the impact of all of this yeah. conditioning on children and how upsetting it is for children and what it might yeah. mean for them uh, going forward. And it was a genuine pleasure to to meet you properly today. Thanks for giving us your time. I know you're busy. If there's um, anything you'd like to mention, anything coming up, I know you might be taking a, a bit of a drive on Saturday down the country. So you <laughs> yeah, were telling me. Um, I just think. It, I, what I would like to happen is we're going from Belfast to Dublin in, in, a, in a convoy. I would like people from all over Ireland to come and, and the farmers and the, the, the JCB drivers and everybody and just park their cars in Dublin city centre and say, we're not moving until you get your big nose out of our business and let us have our lives back. Fantastic. You have no authority. Isn't it amazing to- what happened in Canada, isn't it? In, where, where was it in Canada? Is it Ottawa in Canada? Is that where it happened? Um, the, the big convoy of truckers, that's a great thing, isn't it? Peaceful, no violence, no threats, just massive amounts of people turning up and saying, enough. trucks and, yeah. and, 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 and I think a million and a quarter people out along with them. And the BBC are, are, are looking at a blank wall. And yet if there was a riot, <laughs> yeah, you know, in, in some neighbourhood downtown and, you know, that that would be all over the news. It is absolutely, it's just misery porn is the only thing that human beings are allowed to see on their media. I, it, 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 it absolutely fascinates me how people can pay a TV licence. To, so, um, to be brainwashed. Well, good luck on, on Saturday. Godspeed to you and uh, and the crew. And do come back on any time. You're welcome back here anytime. Thanks so much for coming on today. Keep up the good work. All the best. Thanks, Bye-bye. Anne. Bye for now. Dr. Anne McCloskey, live on the Richie Allen Show, uh, Wednesday's programme. Anne was speaking live from Derry. What a fantastic lady. Not supposed to do that. Not supposed to do the editorialising. But what are you going to do? Sue me, eh? Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yes, the time is exactly eight minutes past six. It is the 2nd of February 2022. Great lady. Loads of comments. Shall I read a few of them? I suppose I might as well. No point in asking into comment, is there? And then I ignore the comments. Uh, Speaking of good friends, Patricia Brownsfiler has been on. She says, Richie, it's true. Children do not need the shots. More parents need to do more research. Don't forget prominent German virologist Dr. Sukarit Bakhti advises the public not to receive the potentially lethal COVID vaccines. The esteemed doctor warns parents if they vaccinate their defenceless children, they're committing a crime. He gave the very first interview to this programme, Sukarit Bakhti, uh, a year and a half ago when he broke cover. He spoke to me first and we had a fascinating conversation. Um, he's a bit reluctant to come back, sadly. I'd like to get him back for a follow-up, but I advise people to follow him, find him online, because he's very, very interesting. I think he took a lot of flack in the press when he deigned when he deigned to appear on this programme. That means when he stooped, just in case you don't know. That's 
the word of the day. Susie Dent, put that in your knickers. He deigned. Hi to Cookie, who says police have tried to phone for the tow trucks to remove the truckers. That's right. I saw that. I was reading that in one of the broadsheets today. I saw a video of uh, the police going to a cafe or a pub telling the truckers, we're going to take your trucks away. And the truckers just said, ah, feck off, you know, feck off, be Jesus. Yes. Red Green was a bit upset hearing about the 12-month-old baby, as was my friend Jean-Anne Crowley. It's horrible, that. The worst of it is, as, as long ago as a year ago, child psychologists were telling the BBC that masking kiddies, masking their teachers, masking their parents, their babysitters, is causing severe developmental issues in children. And it is affecting their ability to speak. Children, you know, of that age, of the two years, three years, four-year-old age, are, I'm struggling to talk myself this afternoon, but those children are not articulating, are not speaking as early as they would have done before the whole COVID thing. There's a bit of a stunting in their development, in their ability to communicate. It's disgusting. Of course it is. Uh, Seamus Connolly, very interested as well in what Anne had to say. Lucy says, thanks, Dr. Anne. I hope more doctors and nurses will stand up. Hi to Robert Goble. Jim says national insurance, the rise of national insurance, which will come in in April, will raise £12 billion for the NHS. It will also cripple millions financially. The NHS test and trace programme costs £37 billion. Makes a lot of sense, don't it? Asks Jim. It doesn't, Jim. You're absolutely bang on. Wayne was on to say he reckons that COVID was created in a Wuhan lab. A lot of people agree with that. Thanks to Craig who says a research paper came out early in 2020 that claimed isolation of COVID-19 and claimed to have identified HIV spike proteins attached to the coronavirus. This has made me wonder... Which specific spike protein or spike protein mRNA has been injected into people? After all, a lot of C19 and related vaccine-induced illnesses are autoimmune ones. Thank you, Craig. I'm going to take a tune and then I'm going to have a little bit of my inhaler because I'm struggling to breathe this afternoon. I've had a little bit of asthma, just a little bit of asthma, as you can probably hear, but that's no big deal. It happens every now and then. I'll take a giant big whiff of my inhaler, and then we will crack on. It is time for a bit of C&W country. I don't think they call it country in Western anymore. It's good old-fashioned country music. This is Ashley Munro, going to be speaking shortly to Stuart Waiting. He's a top man. Don't miss him. We'll be talking about uh, censorship, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. And you can join in on richieallen.co.uk. Ashley Monroe and used on the Richie Allen Show. It is live, 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 live from Salford here in the northwest of the UK. Monday to Thursday, 5 till 7 o'clock. The BBG is always here. I was jesting with my pal Jean Ann earlier about people who refer to themselves in the third person. In fact, she was doing the jesting. I think it was Neil Young referring to himself in the third person. It's either Rogan 
or Young, said Neil Young. And Spotify said, well, close the door on your way out then, you crusty old bastard. <laughs> Get out of here. Shocking to me, isn't it? You would have thought that once you go, you know, people of a certain vintage, once people are of a certain vintage, once they're older, that they wouldn't stand for the sort of censorship that Neil Young and Joni Mitchell are calling for. I mean, they'll remember censorship. They'll remember the things that were censored. Many things were censored when they were in their pomp. Astonishing. And you know, it's not, not that it matters. Everybody has the right to an opinion, whether you have Anne McCloskey's credentials or not, Dr. Anne McCloskey. You're still entitled to an opinion. You've got eyes, you've got ears, you've got the ability to read something, haven't you? And to, to analyse it and to reach a conclusion and, and then to express an opinion. doesn't matter. But they're calling these people for the silencing of cardiologists and scientists and epidemiologists. It doesn't get much more stupid. Sorry about that. <laughs> that fader should have been down. But that sounds very much like it's Stuart. It is. It's 17 and a half minutes past six o'clock. The Richie Allen Show with you till seven. Just before we welcome Stuart back to the programme, just to remind you, we got into this at the beginning. I was just talking about it there. So the actress Sharon Stone is the latest celebrity to come out and call for the, I don't know, for the banning, I suppose, of the podcaster Joe Rogan. Now, he is an enormously successful podcast creator and host. He gets about 11 million downloads per episode. He has an exclusive deal with Spotify. He seems to be an interesting guy. He likes to talk to people about lots of different subjects. And he likes to have people on whose opinion maybe he, whose opinions I should say, maybe he wouldn't share. So lately, he's found some very credible academics who are a bit dubious about vaccine mandates and also a bit dubious about the necessity to vaccinate everybody with what is, let's be honest about it, an experimental vaccine. Now, we're not going to get into that with Stuart, but it's the principle of the thing. So they want them gone. Right. Uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. Now we're going to talk about that with Stuart Waiton. He's an academic, a very successful one, an author. You will see him on television programmes and radio programmes as well. He's a criminologist and sociologist, and you should read him at stuartwayton.wordpress.com. I'll say it again, stuartwayton.wordpress.com, because he blogs on these issues and others. Lovely to welcome him back. Uh, our friend Stuart Waiton. It's been a while, Stuart. Lovely to have you back on. How are you? I'm good. Can you can you hear me all right? I never trust myself with these things. You're absolutely fine. I'm, I, <laughs> I I've I've got the old uh, the old gain functions on the desk, so I can turn you up anyway, or I can turn you down if you get offensive. <laughs> as the case. Now this this is not funny stuff, is it? I said a minute ago before you rang in, I said it shouldn't matter whether it's some bloke down the dog and duck who is a bit of a, I don't know, a contrarian, somebody who likes to, you know, to disagree with things. It shouldn't matter whether it's him or whether it's a, a Harvard scientist. It's incredibly sinister when you have celebrities and others telling a, a, a platform like Spotify to get rid of a bloke because they don't like some of his interviewees, Stuart. 
Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, here's to to blow your trumpet a bit. But when I've been describing Joe Rogan to people, because a lot a lot of people don't know who Joe Rogan is, I've said, well, he's a bit like Richie Allen. You know, the Richie Allen guy who you know you'll have basically anyone on. He's got a certain perspective himself, but really he's just trying to you know have a discussion about whatever and try and find the truth as best best that he can. I mean, I came across Joe Rogan because my daughter, right? So. I mean, I don't know if you've got kids or come know people of no. that age, but they spend a lot of their time on YouTube, right? And like YouTube's got a zillion people doing a zillion strange things. And instead of watching telly, they seem to go on YouTube. Anyway, so she does this and he used to be on YouTube before he went to Spotify. So she knew Joe Rogan. She would say, oh, blah, 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 these different people. And so I've watched a few of his kind of bits of his shows. I mean, they go on for hours and the you know, they're a bit boring at times, but I mean, I just thought he was always you know, a pretty reasonable guy. He's basically, if you were going to say he's got a position on anything, the main one would be, I think, that he believes in freedom of speech and debate. Um, you know, he's got a little bit of conspiracy things going on, but I mean, what he does on his shows, he has a guest, and then as they're chatting, He'll just say, well, let's look that up. And he says to his assistant, find, can you find something on that? Find a paper, la, la, la. And they just, they troll the internet and they try and find facts and figures and different discussions, different debates and so on. So he was very good on um, the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, for example. Yeah. Right? And I thought well, that was, you know, quite interesting because he would just, you'd have guests on who were just explaining exactly what this media outlet has just done which is kind of essentially just say something that's absolutely not true and then you'd find a quote from this and a quote from that and that's what he does he tries to look at various issues through his guests and yeah he's got different uh different guests so so to me the fact that this is like a huge controversy just shows how far we're going along the line of saying essentially, well, if, if we don't have the official approach being adopted, then we need to cancel them. And I'll tell you, one of the things I thought was funny was, yeah, if you're a kind of, if you're a bit of a lefty, a bit of a sociology type, um, a bit of a kind of culturally aware person, you'd often slag off the idea of celebrity culture. Right, sort of celebrity culture idea. It's a little bit condescending because it kind of means you know the the general public are not that smart and they're being influenced by celebrities and all the rest of it. But I tell you, God, increasingly, people like uh, Neil Young and these other, you know, whether it's George Clooney or whatever, who start to become UN ambassadors and you know Bono seems to like you know be more important than the president half the time when it comes to anything that he wants to say about world poverty or whatever i mean this is celebrity culture writ large you know these are people who are unelected multi-millionaires very privileged um having a massive impact on public discussion and debate and then on this occasion trying to essentially destroy (laughs) public discussion and debate which is such a shame because i mean a lot of people me included yeah I've got my guitar sitting next to me here. Not that I'm very good, but you know, I, I like Neil Young's nice. I like to play some of his songs. Some of his stuff's fantastic. And you just think, God, what a shame, isn't it? You know, they I mean, should know a... better because they're old oh, enough to know God. better. These people, they've lived yeah. through some pretty massive yeah. historical events, and they will know 
what censorship is these people and again it's not just some bloke not that it matters if it's only some bloke they're they're asking for a guy to be removed because he interviewed a doctor now i've got a dog in this fight as you well know i've interviewed some of these doctors and then they've the the the, the national press has gone after them and gone after shows like this for for interviewing him and i'm not putting them on just to wind people up I'm putting them on because, well, the BBC is basically refusing to do it. Channel 4, ITV, are refusing to platform guys like, you know, people I've had on from Harvard University, Stuart. Now, you're a university professor. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were talking about criminology and sociology in terms of a big, big, big story? And the BBC decided that you couldn't be part of that debate just because they didn't like what you were saying. I mean, that's yeah. what's happening. I mean, I, I can't believe we're living through it, but it's happening. And I think you said a moment ago, it seems to be getting incrementally worse. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the the feedback is in terms of how it pans out. I mean, it, you'll have seen, so Joe Rogan did this kind of nine-minute um, comeback, which where he was quite humble and sort of said, you know, perhaps I've, you know when I do a controversial speaker, I should have somebody else on and so on. And I think a lot of people who don't know who Joe Rogan is might actually see that video and think, this guy sounds quite reasonable, actually. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, he actually wants... To... And, and, and the thing that's interesting about him, and I, I do think this is true, is that he is quite an open-minded guy. Um, and it's not that he's just got this kind of one-dimensional kind of trying to hammer... Uh, a perspective, a kind of Jordan Peterson type analysis, blah, blah, blah. That's just, and that's the end of it. He's genuinely open to different arguments and discussions. He's got his own perspective and his own take on things. And he sort of like errs to one side in terms of, you know, the culture wars a bit and so on. Um, but he is genuinely open to having a discussion with anybody about anything. I have to be um, honest, Stuart, I just recently started watching because of the controversy. I, I obviously knew who he was, because anybody who creates independent content, you'll be aware of who he is. Um, and I have to say, spending a bit of time lately looking at him, I like his style. I think you've beautifully, I think, um, critiqued him. He definitely has a point of view, but he's not dogmatic about it. He's interested in hearing a wide range of opinions. And I and I like him. I could watch a bit more of him. I do agree with you. Some of the interviews go on a bit too long. Although I, that's like the pot calling the kettle black. I sometimes have guests on for an hour as well or longer. But is, is it embarrassing for what we call the legacy media, is it, to see a guy doing that when they've basically ruined discourse by shortening interviews to three, four minutes? I mean, you know, Stuart, if you get a call mm. off a of Sky mm. or the BBC, they're only, only going to give you four minutes. You can barely start putting together, you know, a train of thought. And here's a guy doing something that maybe the media should be doing. Maybe they don't like it, maybe. Yeah, that is quite interesting because it's, I mean, it's definitely true that, which is strange when you think about it, that we've got 24-hour news and 24-hour channels. And yet it probably is the case that YouTube and platforms like that are where you get interviews for an hour, an hour and a half or on his show. He seems to go on for three hours or something at times um, where you can actually explore sort of nuances of discussion and yeah it is it is an interesting thing that and you're exactly absolutely right you know if you, if i go on sky or uh, gb news or any of these programs it's a kind of i mean you lit you know some of the times you're talking about two minutes you know there's a 10 minute section there's three people on it 
you get a, a, a bite at the start and then you maybe get to come back for a minute and that's that's the that's the end of the matter so yeah it's it's interesting and and you know as i say it'll be interesting to see what the viewing figures are for this guy um over the next few weeks and few months um i mean they say no news is bad news and yeah. all the rest of it so you know, perhaps it'll just make him even more popular. I think you're bang on. No such thing as bad publicity. You're listening to Stuart Waiton, folks. Stuart is an author, he's an academic. Uh, he is a, a very respected sociologist and criminologist. We're talking a little bit about freedom of speech. We're going to get really into it in a minute now. We're going to talk about, a little bit about David Goodwillie in a moment. Stuart's got an interesting take on that. Before that, though, I can't not mention this because I think we got into, a couple of years ago, before the whole COVID thing, we talked a little bit about the silliness of policing. Isn't it just weird and bizarre? Now, n- neither of us is a woman. So we've got to put that out there and, you know... We don't know what what it's like maybe for some idiot to be screaming stuff at you. Maybe it's more than a pain in the arse. Maybe it's nerve-wracking. Maybe it's intimidating. And I don't want to be dismissive of that. And I also don't want to virtue signal because I still think it's outrageous that in West Yorkshire, female police officers are going undercover to catch guys in cars who might roll the window down and wolf whistle or proposition a a passing boy uh, lady. Um, I mean, Stuart, what the hell? Well, it's, I mean, this is the core of the book that I'm I'm writing. I'll probably be writing this for the next five years, but... So much is happening. (laughs) The criminalisation of everything. And the essence of my, if you like, the, the probably the main dimension of it is arguing that the framework of law and policing and culture has shifted from a situation where the the average or reasonable person was presumed to be robust to a situation now where the average reasonable person is presumed to be vulnerable. And the wolf whistling thing is very interesting. There's a funny story attached to that. I was writing a, um, a submission to there's a, a proposal for misogyny to be co- made into a hate crime in Scotland, and they've set up a misogyny um, working group in Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament. And so I wrote this submission. I looked at the people that they'd invited to come along, uh, all of whom, as far as I could tell, what I'd describe as victim feminists. Um, Baroness Kennedy is chairing it. Uh, she's come out and kind of like uh, celebrated sort of hashtag me too compared to the suffragettes and so on. And so I was writing my submission and I'd finished it and I walked into the house and my, she was my fiance at the time, my, my now wife uh, turned to me and just said, Oh, I've just been whistled. I, and I said in a stupid, clumsy <laughs> sociological way, I said, Oh, how did you experience that? <laughs> you know, as if like who 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 really speaks like that? Yeah. And she says, "What what do you mean?" And I says, "Well, what do you think?" And she went, "Great." <laughs> right. Right? And, but then she said, "But I wouldn't let him know that," right? Which is good because I like that, right? Yeah. So, and, and so, so the police are now policing something that my wife, if it happens to her, thinks is great, right? And it's, I mean, that's what you get to this situation where the police are presuming that the correct approach to a wolf whistle is to be traumatized by it. Yeah. That's the presumption, right? And it's like, it's ridiculous because it's such a subjective dimension to it in terms of 
where it happens, how it happens, who's doing it, how they're doing it, and 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 yourself as a person, right? And I think that's the big problem and the difficulty is that right, what you want is you want you want a kind of 1970s feminist who either tells the person to f off, yeah, yeah, or laughs, right? Because they think that what being a feminist is is to be strong yes right whereas now what it means to be a feminist is to be the most weak thin-skinned chronically offended person and that basically means that that, and this is my probably my biggest worry in the whole criminalization framework is that the way we are going is we are moving to a situation where every intimate relationship between a man and a woman is going to be policed in the future Every interaction, everything we say and do to one another in public and even in private becomes a policing matter. And for me, that is that spells such a disaster for society, as far as I can see. Now, you're, you're well placed to, to comment on this, because did I read a few years ago in one of the UK broadsheets that in some universities, male and female students who might have a romp after a night out were giving each other consent through their mobile phone devices and stuff for fear of what you just described, for fear of falling foul of the law. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't seen any of these yet. I don't know. I mean, it was certainly something that was um, being promoted in America and so on, that you've got an app of some description and you have a kind of consent. So it's like a constant consent. So it's like, you know, I, I am now going to kiss you is that okay you know i am now going to in sort of like every aspect of a a kind of developing intimate relationship you have a contractual agreement with and you just think of how how warped that makes that relationship you know how, how how different how problematic how i mean it's 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 Almost, uh, you know, almost unimaginable, but... Can I be devil's advocate, Stuart? A, a thousand apologies for, for interrupting you, can, and we've got yeah, loads yeah. of time left. Can I be yeah. devil's advocate here? I have spoken to a couple of academics over the years, people I like, people like Gail Dines. Gail is in Boston. She's a feminist. Um, I think she'd be an old-school feminist. There, there might be a bigger issue with consent today than maybe there was when... We're, we're a very similar age, you and I. When we were dating... Or, or, or praying to get a date, as, as it was in my case, praying to date. Um, consent wasn't so great of an issue. There seems to be a problem around consent with the late teens. I know it sounds like a terrible generalisation. Um, with with the, the, the 20-somethings today, and a lot of academics believe that the changes, this is so deep now, I don't want to get into this, I want to talk about David Goodwillie, but that a lot of this has to do with how pornography has changed in recent years. Is there a consent issue or is it worth looking into that? To be honest with you, and I mean, I haven't done enough research looking at you know, young pe- young men's attitudes in particular. But I teach a lot of young guys. I've got a son. You know, I see how people act and react. I and I mean, I can't see an awful lot of difference in terms of you know expectations and and so on. I mean, there might be a change, but I don't think that I don't think that changes your 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 basic 
capacity to know how people are, you know, right. how, how, how you are with friends, how you act with certain people, how you act with, with girls and so on. I mean, it, it might be the case that people are becoming more distant from each other. So they're, they're less, they're less comfortable. They're less, they're less in the know of how to, to do it. But I mean, uh, all of this stuff, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, you just start clumsily, not really having a clue and then <laughs> you know right. then you know you just sort of I mean I remember my first girlfriend she, she she was this lovely looking girl when she was about 13 and she asked me if I wanted to go to a party and I was really excited and I turned up to the party and I couldn't talk to her I mean I just I, I literally couldn't talk to her I was couldn't too get the words out. nervous too embarrassed didn't know what to say and so I spent the whole party jumping around like an idiot <laughs> <laughs> and never talking to her. And by the end of the party, she finished with me, even though we'd never we'd never started because I didn't I never I never spoke to her. And so I start there. The next time I might have been slightly better. Um, God so be with the I, days. I'm, just, yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced. You know, I, I think what what happens is people project one thing, which they see as something of a problem, which is the sort of pornographication of everything, right? And the sort yeah. of porn's just absolutely everywhere. And then they sort of fit it into what their existing anxiety is, which is this idea that, yeah, there's a problem with consent. I'm not convinced that that's, that's a reality. And I, I think, you know, people are generally all right. People generally know and learn how to get on with one another. Um, and if anything, I think the, the, the thing that you would want to do is encourage young women to be tough and to learn how to, you know, just say, you know, you should... Uh, you know, learn how to deal with guys. You know, it's uh, don't, when they're coming don't, on pres- strong. Don't, don't presume they're yeah. all good guys. Don't presume they're all bad guys. And but again, I think you know, young men and women just tend to learn this as they grow up and become more mature. So no, I'm 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 not convinced. And 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 I think I mean, what you are getting more at universities now is this thing called consent classes. So and some of them uh, are kind of semi-mandatory. And these are things where you're meant to go along and you're made to be aware and you're essentially educated about the fragility of women right? and the, and the potential threat that you pose to women and that you have to recognize that this is a, a kind of problem that... And that's not right, uh, that, Stuart. That, that's, well, that's woeful, that. That is really bad, that, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to give... I mean, one particular company I worked for years ago, one particular radio station, they, they asked us to participate in sexual harassment awareness, but it was only a 25-minute kind of semi-lecture about, look, and it was so ridiculously obvious, you know, don't read Playboy in the cafe. Like, give me a break. Who would do it anyway? You know, that sort of stuff. But what you've described, I've heard about that and I don't like it. You know, this idea that you're telling men, young men, they might be the most decent lads. You know, you are some inherent threat to the females around you. We could talk for hours on that. I'd love to speak about that in the future. I really want to talk about David Goodwillie. Before I do that, you're listening to Stuart Waiton. Please check him out at Stuart Waiton. That's W-A-I-T-O-N dot WordPress dot com. Read his blogs. He's an excellent writer. He's an author, sociologist, criminologist, lecturer, Aberté University, Dundee. Always good to have Stuart on the programme. This is a big story. It is a Wraith Rovers football club signed, re-signed, we should say, the striker David Goodwillie. And he'd been banging in the goals, hadn't he, at Clyde 
I believe they brought him in. Now, the author, Val McDermott, hugely successful uh, fictional writer, uh, crime stories, I believe, was um, a sponsor of Wraith Rovers, was a bit of a benefactor. So she said, can't have this because this guy lost a civil case. He was accused of rape some years ago. Um, the, the, it didn't meet the criminal uh, test so he he wasn't tried for it in a criminal court that didn't happen but later on his accuser uh, sued him for damages in a civil case that was in 2017 and she was awarded damages uh, from Will, from Goodwillie and from another uh, I, I believe another man maybe another footballer anyway to the present day Wraith Rovers have signed him Val McDermott said no way I'm not I'm not putting up with this two directors have walked away other sponsors are leaving and a Aileen, uh, not, no, it's not Aileen, excuse me. Uh, the chief executive of Scottish women's football has said Wraith Rovers have got this wrong. That's Aileen Campbell. The, the football club's female captain has walked away uh, too. And I know you are really interested in uh, this story. Uh, uh, Stuart, tell us more. Well, honestly, I could, I could talk for far too long on this because there's all sorts of... Um, uh, kind of caveats and all the rest of it but uh, the first thing to bear in mind about this is that as you said there was no evidence or practically no evidence for a criminal case now what has happened in Scotland over recent years and as, as far as I understand the goodwillie is the first mod one of modern times to be taken through the civil court right so and and how this worked how this panned out is that this? So this woman claims that uh, Goodwillie and his uh, friend raped them. They were they were all drunk. She said she wasn't um, able to really make a, a decision uh, to have sex. He says they were just all drunk um, and had sex in a, in a hotel room. So that's their stories. Uh, the police say they can't do anything, but she decides to take this through the civil court. Now, how that worked itself through would be very interesting. What I do know is that the Victim Compensation Board, which I think is based in Glasgow, decided to give this woman £11,000 and say she is a victim of rape. Now, like, what starts to worry me straight away is that that's not evidence, that's not proof, but she has been labelled a victim and you know, logically speaking, Goodwillie is therefore, to a certain extent, being labelled a rapist. Then what happens is she decides to take it to a civil court. Now, who encouraged her to go to a civil court, where this idea came from? Because this is very unusual. And a civil court is meant to be just one individual against another individual. You, there's not, you can't get, get sent to prison in, in the framework of this, but you can say, I want compensation. So she wins £100,000 of compensation. Goodwillie is therefore labelled a rapist. Now, bear in mind, in a civil court, you don't need evidence. You just need the, the, the judge to make a decision of which way he th thinks is true. So if he thinks she is a credible witness, which is basically what they've said in this case, and there was another case about a week ago, and there's been, I think there's been about four cases like this. If that judge, that single judge, no jury, decides on the balance of 51%, i.e. that's all it needs you just have to think i believe this one slightly more than that one then that's the decision made what then happens is goodwillie is classified as a rapist by everyone in society right now 
now we've jumped so that and, and then he went to play for Clyde and the same thing happened at Clyde which is happening here which is there was a campaign this guy's a rapist blah 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 etc now the part of the problem with this is if he had gone to prison and come out of prison you could at least make the argument that he served his time he should now be treated as a free person clean slate and in, yeah. in a tolerant society this is you know we have to allow this man to get on with his life now goodwillie has never be, gone to prison right because it's never there's never been any evidence that they can use to, to actually prove there's been no jury there's just been a judge who's weighed right on one side rather than the other on the balance of probabilities 51% but He's now got a red rape sign stamped on his forehead and he's then thrown out into society. And society says, you're a rapist scumbag. You shouldn't, I mean, essentially the logic of this approach is he should never work, right? He shouldn't be able to play for anybody ever. And maybe he shouldn't be able to have any job anywhere, right? Because, it, it, and to me, this is more like medieval justice, right? Good Willie is in the stocks, right? And he's going to be in the stocks for the rest of his life so that people can throw things at him and say, you're a rapist, you're a rapist. There is no forgiveness. That's the end of it. And Nicola Sturgeon has come out and defended Val McDermott's position, right? So this is the most powerful person in Scotland, right? And this is also bearing in mind on top of this, the Scottish government has set up this misogyny working group and they're looking at create making misogyny hate crime from a extreme what I would say is an extremist feminist position, a one that the Scottish government and correct thinking politicians agree with. They've had speakers at their misogyny working group, for example, Liz Kelly, who argues that there is no clear distinction between consensual sex and rape, right? That's Liz Kelly's perspective on it. Right? There is no clear distinction between consensual sex and rape. She is but that's an extremist lunacy, right? That Absolute is lunacy. lunacy, yeah. And she is one of the people who's been invited to speak at the misogyny working group, right? And there's, there's others, an Australian called Kate Mann, whose book's described as like deeply relevant to hashtag me too, and so on, right? So they are taking I, what, what I would suggest the vast majority of people in Scotland would not agree with the perspective that they are taking, but this is the, the correct perspective being taken by the Scottish government and politicians in Holyrood. You have also had, to make it even more problematic, the Attorney General, um, Dorothy Bain, who's recently, I wrote an article about this recently, she has argued that jury, there should, in cases of rape, we should have no juries because you cannot trust ordinary people to make decisions about juries because they believe in rape myths, right? And she is arguing that we should get rid of juries, right? Unbelievably authoritarian, unbelievably dangerous, and she basically thinks people like her, enlightened people, should now rule on rape cases, right? So the rape law situation in Scotland is, is I mean, for me, this is going to a pre-modern state of affairs where vengeance victim justice applies there's no need for juries potentially and there's no need for juries in these cases that are being funded to go to civil uh, courts where one individual under pressure i would argue of a, t a time where you have to hashtag believe makes a decision about a person's life and brands them as rapist and then throws them out into the field and there you have good willie 
being kicked about as a rapist scumbag. So in the current climate then, you think it would be disastrous to assign that responsibility to one man or woman, particularly to one man, to decide whether the evidence threshold had been met, whether a girl or a boy had been raped because of the current climate, because of the hysteria around the Me Too movement. That would be disastrous for justice, you reckon? I do. And I... I have discussion stroke arguments with lawyers about this, right? And lawyers defend the civil law framework because they say, you know, it's it's there for individuals to be able to use the law against another individual. As far as I'm concerned, and, you know, I'd be very interested to get into a discussion with legal people about this to work out how this is and so on and the logic of it. But as far as I'm concerned, if if any case is a case that would be something that would send you to prison for a long time, I think you need a jury. I do not believe that it is just to have an individual ruling over a case of that significance. I agree. But well, can it, I it ask can, you? It can destroy. It can, it's immoral. For me, it is immoral and it is unjust to do what they are doing at the minute. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I can't tackle that. I can't go after that in any way to be... You know, to be um, to be balanced about it. You're right. You're a hundred percent right. It, it would be absolutely unimaginable. You know, if I was accused of, of of sexually assaulting someone, the idea that some bloke, some woman would would get to make that uh, decision. Look, you know as well as I do, whether we like it or not, and we might be thick skinned and and all of that. There will be women listening to this, and they will say. These two lads are probably okay, but it's typical of two blokes there, you know, saying that, oh, poor good Willie. They will say, why would she, A, have accused him of rape in the first place, and B, why would she pursue it even further in the civil case unless he had um, assaulted her without getting her consent? Now, on that, um, the, the, uh, the... the prosecution, the original criminal investigation, didn't proceed to a criminal prosecution because there was insufficient evidence in law. Lots mm. of people listening to this, Stuart, will say that doesn't mean that he didn't do it. No, of course it doesn't. Yeah. Absolutely. It absolutely doesn't mean he didn't do it, right? Um, but, you know, and if that was your daughter, right, you would be thinking that he's a scumbag, he deserves everything that you get. But if he was your son, you'd be saying, well, Surely there needs to be evidence. Yeah. You, know, you can't you can't destroy a human being, right, without evidence. And here you have, and particularly you've got to bear in mind that the way the criminal justice system works is that you try and put the onus on the state to have to prove its case, right? Of course, in civil law, it's not the state; it's individual versus individual, so they can get around it. But the principles that the 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 sort of jury system, criminal justice system, works on is a recognition that the state is hugely powerful, right? Hugely powerful. And it is hugely powerful. And you can see in this case, it's hugely powerful because you've got a victim industry giving uh, 11,000 pounds away. The Scottish government also has, which I'll need to find out where I've written this, because I know this is the case, but I haven't been able to find it yet. They have set up a, a particular pot of money for cases like this so that women can use... So it's it's essentially state-sponsored civil action, right? This is not really just one individual against another action. This is a state which has this very particular and very peculiar, I would argue, view on misogyny and the nature of men, the nature of women, one that is 
extreme. Uh, and all that pressure, all of that, all the training and so on that the, these judges and these sheriffs are having, all the pressure about um, rape trials, that rape myths and so on. And then you have this situation with some guy, is, and this has happened, so the last one last week, the, is you get people get taken to court, they find it not proven because there's going to be not proven in Scotland as well as not guilty. And then the person takes it to the the civil court. So basically, for all intents and purposes, they get off. And then they're put on trial again, right? And this has essentially been backed, promoted and celebrated by the state. Now, that's fine. You might say, why, you know, do you believe him? Do you believe her? Well, I don't know. I need a proper court case. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need evidence. You know what I mean? I watch, I don't know what you're like, but one of the things I've watched loads on Netflix and the other things is these two crime documentaries oh, yeah, where, yeah. the cops are trying to find out the evidence and all the rest of it. And I think when you watch those things, I think the criminal justice system is brilliant. It's brilliant in terms of investigation, but it's also brilliant in terms of the checks and balances. You need to prove your case beyond reasonable doubt, right? And you need to do it in front of your peers, in front of a jury, right? And juries can make mistakes, juries can do this and all the rest of it. But as a system of justice, it's one of the best things about modern society that we have this setup. And what's happening in Scotland now is they are trying to sidetrack and through the back door, essentially get people, uh, not convicted, but whatever they call it within a civil case framework, of being rapists with no evidence other than you believe the woman's story more than the guy's story. That's and it, it. And in that I mean, case... That cannot be just for, for me, anyway. And just, just, just to say, Stuart isn't uh, giving an opinion there. That's actually exactly what happened. There was no evidence to, to, to take it to... Well, excuse me. There was insufficient evidence to take the criminal case into court. The judge then, on his own, off of his own back made a decision to believe the lady involved. Now, again, to be fair, David did appeal and three appeal judges at the court of session upheld the ruling against him and the other guy, Robertson. So if if if, if family of the girl happened to be listening to this, um, they will say, listen, three independent judges had a look at the testimony given in the civil case and they determined that they agreed with uh, the judge. But that doesn't make the process right. You're not attacking the integrity of anybody, neither the uh, alleged victim nor Goodwilly. You're attacking the process, and, and I agree process. with you. It's the uh, process. It's, uh, yeah. You know, and, and again, I'm presuming those uh, three independent judges are ruling on the balance of probability, which is 51%. I, I don't think anybody should be branded a rapist um, on the balance of probabilities rather than, uh, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, which is what the, the case should be. And as I say, I don't fully understand this in terms of how the civil courts. This is this is not entirely new, but it is unusual, and it's 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 obviously a political development, right? The reason that this has started happening in the last ten years is political, right? Because these issues have been politicised. You've got a certain sort of political push on things. Uh, you've got an an outlook which I think is wrong and reactionary that sees ordinary people as morons who can't be trusted on. Uh, juries, uh, you've got money being set up, you've got hate crime uh, initiatives being developed. All the weight is pushing in one direction, uh, and then these cases turn up. So, I mean, are, are these situations prejudiced? 
Um, I, I think there's a certain argument to say that this is a kind of a fairly solid state-sponsored push to get people convicted uh, and to be punished um, when they don't have the evidence. When there's no and evidence you, you there. Know, you, you need the evidence. It's, surely we need the evidence to, to brand. I mean, the, the, the one that you'll be familiar with, which, again, I couldn't understand and I thought was bizarre, even though O.J. Simpson, for me, was guilty as, guilty as hell. Yeah. absolute travesty of justice what happened. But nevertheless, he got done in the civil courts. It was like, how does that... Uh, at the time, I thought, well, how does that work? You know, they just basically... They lose the trial, and then this, they do them in a civil court. I mean, there was other things involved and so on, but nevertheless, they used the civil court process to, to get O.J. To Simpson. get him in the end. It just, just seemed wrong. We're, and, we're, and, we're, and just out of time. we're just out of time, Stuart. Um, oh, Stuart writes about these issues and others, but these issues on stuartwayton.wordpress.com. Do get onto it straight away. Um, genuinely love speaking with you, mate. I really do. I, I hope it won't be long before you come back. Don't wait to be invited, Stuart. Thanks for your time, mate. Cheers. Great stuff. Stuart Waiton, folks, closing out uh, Wednesday's programme, stuartwaiton.wordpress.com. Uh, do check him out. We could have done with more time there, amazingly enough. We'll get him back on to talk about that issue and more in the near future. Thanks to Dr. Anne McCloskey as well, live on the line from Derry earlier on. Thank you for listening. Stay with richieallen.co.uk. Please do support the programme, dear listener. The only financial the only way this programme survives is if you support it there is no advertising you know that so go to richieallen.co.uk there are bank account details there's a Patreon thing support it if you can if you can't don't think any more of it enjoy the rest of your Wednesday back tomorrow at 5 o'clock for Thursday's Richie Allen show and Ryan Christian the last American vagabond is one of my guests tomorrow bye now bye now